Hello, I'm Michael Rashad and welcome to Farside Filemaker. In today's podcast, we're going to cover a very large subject, scripting and calculations, the good, the bad, and the ugly, to paraphrase Clint Eastwood. Over to you, John. And my name is John Mark Osborne, and I first thought about this subject when I taught my first FileMaker class. And what I did was I thought, okay, we're going to cover scripting. I need to go ahead and give a great overview. So I went through every single script step and provided very simple examples. But with so many questions from students and so many examples, it took a couple of days. I think it was three days. It was decades ago, so I don't remember exactly. But during my next class, I made a big change. I said, okay, we need to get into more complex examples. We can't just cover all these simple things because they're not really learning anything. So in my next class, I changed it up and I handed out a piece of paper with all the script steps on it. And I quickly reviewed the script steps, not by defining them for the most part. I mean, maybe a little definition here and there, but by telling the students which ones were important and which ones weren't. And I fell into the category, I think I called them evil script steps and scripts I couldn't live without. And then there were some that were in between that were very important script steps, but not very difficult to learn. So we have script steps with depth, script steps that are easy to use and used a lot, but you don't have to do much to learn them. And then the ones you should probably never touch, the evil ones. So this only took about an hour. It was perfect because I got people to put little asterisks next to the script steps that they need to focus in on and, you know, little unhappy faces, you know, frowny faces next to the ones that they shouldn't touch. And that helped them to get an idea because there's 179 script steps in FileMaker 18. It's a daunting task to learn all these script steps. Even back then, there's probably at least 150 when I first started teaching. And the whole point is that you want to have an idea of what you want to touch. If you have to think you have to learn every single script step, well, then you're going to have a daunting task. But if you can whittle it down to, let's say, half of them that have the most depth or even a quarter of them that you use most of the time, then all of a sudden you can learn those. And it's not that you don't want to learn the other ones, but you don't need to spend that much time on and trying to figure out what's important and what's not. Right. It's 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 about using your time wisely and if you don't need to learn something specifically wait until you actually need to use it and then learn and understand it same with calculations i I was just going to say that's the same idea with functions there's you know a handful or 25 or so that you use every single day like substitute and left and all these things you know case statements that you have to spend a lot of time on and it's the same thing with the script workspace there's script steps that you don't have to know intimately just know they're there and when you need to use it for that special project or that special situation then you can you know study up on it a little bit now the way we're absolutely now the way we're going to cover this is by area the way that the script workspace is organized and we're going to start with that control area not we're not going to go through the script steps alphabetically but we'll go through them by area because that's the way i'm used to working with them and so make sure if you're following along with us uh, you know, you're listening, maybe you're on your computer and you have ScriptMaker open. I called it ScriptMaker again. You'll hear me do that going back to uh, the old days. If you have it open, you can just make sure you're listing it by category or area, and then you can know which the next step, uh, script step we're going to cover. So the control section is the section that I pretty much can't live without. It's the stuff that you can't do with going up to the menu and choosing something, because if 
you understand how the script workspace works, it's about automation. And it can do basically what you have under the menus. But a lot of the stuff, in fact, most of it under the control section, is stuff like making decisions and, and controlling where you go, stuff that your brain would do, not necessarily FileMaker. And so it's a very important section. And we're going to start with allow user abort. So the first script step in the control section is allow user abort. And pretty much every script should have allow user abort in it. It's one of those extremely easy to use script steps, but so important because it allows the user who's using your FileMaker system that you so eloquently designed, it allows them to either cancel the script or not. And you don't usually want people to cancel a script. You know, if your script is going from layout to layout to layout and doing all these different things and they cancel it in the middle by doing a command period on the Macintosh or hitting the escape key on Windows, then they may be left in some layout that you didn't ever want them to see. And so it's very important to turn allow user abort off. Now, if you don't put that script step in there, it's going to be on, meaning they can cancel the script. If you put allow user abort in there, it's going to default to off, meaning it turns it off, which is probably what you want. Oh, it's almost certainly what you want. And I, I think the only time that one would turn allow user abort on is when you're developing a solution and you want to be able to test it. Other than that, once it's once the script is working, you should never I would never let the user to cancel it. And that's a great segue because you're talking about we want to turn it off and then turn you know and and keep it off, right? But what if we're going between development and user, you know, maybe you need to, you know, uh, send, uh, you're doing some live development and making a few changes. You want to have it able to, uh, to cancel the script yourself because you don't want to get stuck in a loop because you're doing some new script, but you don't, but you don't want to go to every script and turn them on and turn them off, especially when you've, you've been developing it, uh, locally and then finally put it up on the server. You don't want to go through to everyone and say, okay, they're all on, let's turn them all off. I mean, that could be hundreds of scripts. So the best thing to do is to modularize that and put that allow user board in a script by itself and then use a perform script from every script to call it. So you can turn that one script off and it flows through all the rest of the scripts that call it. And that's really the best way to make sure that you can turn it on and off at, at any notice. Now, of course, you can always cancel a script, whether it's set to on or off, if you're using the debugger. So when you're developing, the chances are you've probably got the debugger on for part of that, and so you can cancel the script. So the modularization there isn't 100% essential, but it's a very good way to do it for just to have that option. So if it's full access, you can the, the defaults are set to on and off as opposed to off and on. Yeah, very good point about the script debugger. And so the point about allow user board is that it's not really a complex script step. There's only two options, on or off. It's how you use it. And so you definitely need to modularize it. In fact, I take it a step further. I'll put inside my modular script a, an if statement with an else and say, does get account privilege set name equal full access with the square brackets? In other words, is the count or the privilege, the account that's logged on, whatever privilege that they have, is it the you know the developer? 
And if it is, I turn allow user board off. Otherwise, I turn it on. So that way, I never even have to turn allow user board off because I always, as a developer, want to be able to cancel a script. Yeah, exactly. And one other point I want to make is that you got to remember is that you have to put allow user board in every script because if you want it, because it once your script ends, it goes back to the default as if, you know, because I said when you when if you don't put allow user board in there on that script, it, it's going to, you know, it's going to be, you know, allow the user to to cancel that script. So you have to actually put it in every script because it goes back to that default after the script is done running. It will run through all of your subscripts that are called from the main script. Wherever you turn allow user abort in that string, that spider web of script steps, they're all connected together. As soon as you turn it on or off, it'll keep that through all that, that whole string of, of scripts. But once they end, then it's back to you need to go ahead and set it off at the beginning of the next script that you start from a button or however it ends up starting. Yeah, it's a good point, John. I mean, otherwise, it'd be just a phenomenal amount of work to have to go through and make all these changes. So set or capture is that next script step that's really, really important, but really easy to use. Well, it might be a little bit more complex, but it is the same idea. You want to modularize it like allow user board because you set our capture is going to be off, meaning you're going to get the FileMaker messages, the FileMaker error messages each time you run a script. So you have to turn it on so that it captures those so you can go ahead and do an if statement and say, what was the error or, or do whatever you want. So you don't have to see those error messages. So it's kind of the same idea as allow user board just for a different feature. In other words, I don't want to see FileMaker messages. I want to make my own messages or I want it to, to branch off somewhere if this error happens. And so you need to do the same thing with error capture. So those are the first two scripts I create inside of any solution is my allow user board and my set error script. Right. So just with regard to set error capture the most common use for me is if when i'm doing a search and if there are no records being found then i want to not i, I don't want to be faced with the filemaker dialog box saying no records have been found or whatever it says because to a user that's confusing i want to be able to do something if no records are found so that I can just move forward. Yeah, or at least put your own message in there that doesn't say things about records. You know, maybe it's contacts that your solution is about. You know, put in some verbiage that they'll understand. Right. It's also important just to make this, I want to really make sure this is important, that when you turn set or capture on or off and allow user board on or off, it permeates through all the called scripts. That's probably the most brief way I can say it. Okay, so the third is a set of script steps, the if, the else, the else if, and the end if. And they're fantastic because they attach the calculation engine to it, so you can do just about anything as far as a test, and if it's true, do this, and if it's false, do that. Pretty straightforward, but so much depth, and you use it so often. Yeah, it's true. It's, it's probably the most used script steps that we'll ever use. Just as an aside, you know, I like to use else if a lot. Um, so I always start off with an if, which is empty, and then I use an else if after that. And then I'm just able to continue using the else ifs. And of course, the nice thing about con this kind of script is once the condition is met, the script will then just complete the steps for that condition and then halt. 
So it doesn't have to go all the way to the end to before it makes a decision, does what it needs to do and stops. Yeah, not only that, uh, it makes it more readable because if you've got a lot of nested ifs and you don't use the else if, but use if, end if, and nest those ifs in between, then it just does this, you know, big, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, 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 it indents everything, and so it gets indented so far. I've seen some scripts that people sent me, I have to actually scroll to the right to read their whole script because it's they haven't used else if and it's it's it can really make your code much easier to read sure and just to make a kind of close things up for it, uh what what michael is mentioning is that you know that he likes to use the else if because you know once it meets that that you know truth then it exits it doesn't have to test every single else if down there that's similar to the case and the if function difference inside of the calculation engine so the case statement, once it meets the criteria that's true, it doesn't test everything else. Well, the if is not inherently nested. And so it's a kind of the same idea. If you People always say, why isn't there a case statement in the scripting engine? And well, there is. It's, it's called if else if. And if you looked at the if function inside a script maker, it would be the if without the else if. So hopefully that helps people understand that difference, why there's not a case in the in the script workspace. You know, it is a confusing thing, but I suppose we're just all used to the conditional of if. And as you said, you know, in the script engine, although it says if, it really is case because it just stops when it meets its criteria. Okay, so let's move on to the loop and loop. One of those kinds of or set of script steps that are great when used correctly. So what do I mean by that? Well, typically when you're doing a loop, there are several types of loops. And we'll get to those later. But the most common type of loop is going to be the one where you loop through records. Would you say that's probably true for you, Michael? Yeah, almost certainly. And the problem with that is that if you loop through records and are doing any kind of change of the record, not grabbing information, but putting information onto it, then you're causing record locking, but not record locking on a single record, which is easy to test for. You can use the open record request, which we'll talk about later, and you can gain control of that. But gaining control of, let's say, 100 or 1,000 records and walking through them and making changes and hoping that all of them are unlocked when you get there is really wishful thinking. And so you can't really use a record loop for the most part. I'm not saying you can't do it, but when there's other people on the system, it's very difficult to do. And I try to avoid it at all costs. Same with the replace feature. And so just be careful when you're using loop. It's, it's a powerful feature, but record locking is more powerful. It'll stop that record from being written. And what do you do at that point? Do you go backwards and unwrite the other records? Are they locked now too? Or, you know, there's all kinds of scenarios. So you really can't use the loop and loop with the record uh, record loop very often in FileMaker. It's just not going to work. Yeah, I tend to use it most when I want to create records in, a, in another table. And I'm setting values from my original record into variables and then going to a new layout, creating a new record, setting the values based on the variables and then closing that window and going to just going to the next record and that does avoid the record locking issues because you're creating new records in the destination table but you are nevertheless locking 
that rec each record as you go to it. Hopefully it shouldn't be a problem. I usually don't worry about creating new records or gathering information from a record. It's only when you try to edit a record that you cause the record locking and have to worry about it. Right. Okay, my favorite, your favorite, everybody's favorite, set variable. If it's not your favorite, or at least in the top 10, it should be. It's one of the most important script steps. The basic idea is it allows you to pass values from one place to another. And typically it's from one table to another. Like you want to grab a value from a parent record, go over to a layout based on the child record and make a record possibly, and then put that value in there. You can bridge those two tables. Previously, what a lot of people use were global fields, but set variables better because you don't have to declare a field. Yeah, you don't have to have the fields and you can have as many dollar variables or dollar dollar variables. So let's talk about that. The dollar variable just lasts for the duration of the script that it's running. If you go to a subscript, it isn't going to carry that over. A global variable is, well, is once it's set, it's open, it's set for the duration of the script. And in fact, after the script, once it exits, unless you make a point of clearing it at the end of the script, which I always do. Yeah, it'll stay in memory and and store the value that you last put in it until you end the session. In other words, close that file. Now let's talk a little bit about the difference between single dollar sign and double dollar signs. You need to know the difference. If you can, go with the single dollar sign. It's always the best choice because then you don't clutter up your data viewer. And that can be important when you're trying to use a script debugger and the data viewer together. And you have, you know, let's say 100 or, or 200 double dollar sign variables. You have to, you know, kind of, oh, which one, what value am I looking at? But if you're using the single dollar signs, and that works in most cases, you need to declare a value, go somewhere, put the value in there, and then you don't need that, that variable anymore. So the single dollar sign with its short life is probably the best option for most situations. And just to kind of uh, follow up on, on uh, you know, I think what uh, what Michael usually does is that Michael likes to put, uh, when, when you're talking between two scripts, is use a, a, a double dollar sign. And that's perfectly viable solution because then when you, you know, this script calls this script, it doesn't have that, that, that uh, single dollar sign variable that was in the first script. So he used a double dollar sign. What I like to do because it's, it causes me so much angst to see all of those global variables inside of the data viewer, I like to pass it from one, a single uh, dollar sign variable, a local variable, using the script parameter when I call that script. Just on perform script, you can enter in that variable and then call it in the next script using get script parameter. Yeah, actually, I hadn't, until you mentioned that, I hadn't really thought about doing it, but it's a really cool idea, and I'm definitely going to start do, doing that. It, you know, and it's all about uh, there's more than one way to do things, and, and there's certainly times when a global variable is the best option. Don't get me wrong. I use them when they when I feel like they're needed. Don't try to program around them with a lot of coding to, to, to avoid using a global variable. If it, if it makes your job easy, then give in and use the double dollar sign. Okay, perform script and perform script on server. We've talked a little bit about them. It allows you to connect two scripts, or uh, they can be in the same file or in two different files. Uh, allows for modular scripting, so you need to know for that reason. And it's good for remote systems on portable devices, and that's sp specifically perform script on server. So you can allow the person 
on their, let's say, their iPad or their iPhone to run a script that's going to take a long time, but have it all run on the server. And that way they don't have to worry about closing the app. You don't have to say, don't close the app for five minutes, you know, because we're running the script. You don't have to do that. You can just have the server do it. And it's incredibly fast uh, when you do perform script on server. Yeah, I think a lot of people think it's going to slow down the server. And if you overuse it, yeah, anything can do it. But, you know, firing it off uh, every once in a while is going to be pretty fast stuff. You don't have to worry about it too much. Now, have you ever used install on timer script? Uh, actually, I use it a lot, but mostly in development with regard to I use it to save a backup of the file I'm working on every 20 minutes. And that way, if I'm making a basically making a copy, so if my computer crashes or FileMaker goes down, I can just pull off the most recent backup from the Dropbox folder and start using that and redo anything as necessary. But I can't think of any cases where I'm actually using it other than for development purposes and for that specific purpose. Yeah, I've tried to use it to do reminder systems on you know on a desktop computer where it lets you know that there's an event coming up and it puts it up on the screen but just about everything you do in scripting interrupts what the person's doing namely mostly typing or navigating and you want something that's going to be independent of and it can't really do that very well i mean it can put something in a global field but it seems to interrupt everything you're doing it's for me never been quite what it was promised to be. Uh, I think really the best use is, is, like you said, keep those backups. If you don't have to want to think about, oh, I got to close the file and, and drag copy, uh, you know, and, and put a date on it, I'm sure yours automatically timestamps it and puts it in the right folder and great stuff like that. Exactly. Now, here's one of those new script steps, set error logging. Pretty cool stuff. It, in my opinion, though, is not really that useful. The only time I've found it to be useful is if a user has a problem and you go over to their computer or you're trying to do it from your computer to replicate it and they don't have the steps. They don't know exactly how they did it. And so if you turn on the set error logging, it's going to make that log of whatever that user does as far as scripting into a file so you can take a look at it later. And it might help you to troubleshoot something that somebody can't tell you. You know, you're, they're saying, hey, this problem's happening. I'm like, well, what are the exact steps? I don't know. It just happens. Fix it, you know. That, that might be uh, some way for you to, to, to figure out what they're doing because users are just trying to get their job done. You can't blame them for not knowing all the steps. Yeah, that's true. I haven't ever used it, to be honest. Exit loop if. And here's a script step that allows you, it's like an if statement, but allows you to exit a loop. So I want to talk quickly about the different types of loops. So we mentioned the record loop, right? Right. And there's also a portal loop. Uh, there's also a script loop. There's also a field loop. And there's also a data loop. And I got a little ahead of myself here in the in our outline here, but that'll be fine. So let's name them again. Record loop, portal loop, field loop, data loop, and script loop. And we'll talk a little bit about each one of those. And then there's many ways to exit loops. And you need to know, if you know one way to exit a loop, you need to know all of them. So I want to talk about how to get out of those, those types of loops. So we're talking about there's exit loop if. If it's true, it'll exit that loop. You can do anything you want. Does the get found count equal zero? Then you have go to record, and 
I see here that Michael's put a note, make sure to click the next and exit after last because that's how it exits out of uh, that loop. So if you're looping through the records, it'll exit after the last one so it doesn't keep you know, bashing its head up against the last record. But you do have to, but you do have to turn it on because by default it's set to off, and that I think was new in FileMaker 18, and I didn't notice it at first. So it is important. Absolutely, and Go to Portal Row has the same option because you're going through Portal Rows or relayed records. But same idea, exit after last one. And a little note there: remember that it will go to that blank row and possibly cause a problem if you have that option to allow creation of related records turned on for that relationship. So be careful on that one. A little bit different than going through records. And then you have halt and exit script. And I see you have some notes here about this, Michael. Well, when you use the halt script, it stops all scripts. So it can it doesn't matter how many scripts are running, it'll stop them all. Whereas if you use exit script, it just stops the current script. And we'll go back to the calling script and continue on with it, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I, I don't use them too much. And in fact, even exit script can pass along a value back to the calling script when it goes back there. Um, I try to avoid halt script just because it stops everything. And then you can't reuse that script somewhere else. And it's, it, and it's not very many uses where that would be a problem. Usually you want to halt, you want to halt. But if you're trying to reuse scripts in different situations, I've had scenarios where putting that halt script in there is just like a big, you know, big speed bump, you know, or one of those things where, you know, you ha you're trying to get out of the, the parking lot without paying those big spikes that come out. That's more of what it is. It'll stop you, and, and there's no way to change it. I prefer to try to go to the buttons. And if you've ever looked at a button definition, there's options for halt, exit, and pause, and resume. I believe I got them all right. Yeah, that's correct. And that's typically where I try to go to put in the halt script if I want one, because then I can halt it at the button level. But you know, this, that's a whole conversation and so many examples there, but just, just at least be aware of how it works and where else you can get halt script and exit script as well. Now here's some more esoteric ways to exit a loop. You can close a window, use the close window script step. If it's the last window or close file, because that'll close everything and that'll exit the script. Exit application, that script step will also exit a loop. But that but let's just clarify, exit application quits FileMaker. Right. <laughs> and it definitely will go ahead and close uh, stop that loop from running. Okay, configure local notification and configure region monitor script. Two script steps. FileMaker go only. We're not going to go into those. That's not really what we want to talk about here, but if you're using FileMaker Go, then that you want to definitely take a look at those, at least be familiar with what, what they are. Yeah. Okay, one section done, one area done, right? Right. Let's move on to navigation. Yeah, and, and probably one of the easier sections for the most part because it does what it does. It allows you to move around. So you have the modes, browse, find, and preview. You can't do a script step for Go to Layout. doesn't make sense. You wouldn't want to. But there's nothing really complex about enter browse mode, enter find mode, enter preview mode. But I will go ahead and, and quiz you. We didn't we didn't uh, decide this ahead of time, but I'm going to quiz Michael and say, what field are you in when you run a script that does an enter find mode? What field will be selected? 
That's a very good question. I don't have any idea. That, that's okay. It's like I, I study these l really weird quirks about how things work, and what's going to be selected is the field you have selected in browse mode. I remember saying that. Yeah, of course. Well, yeah, once you do, you go, oh, yeah, of course. I always know I'm in that field, right? Because you can be in the field and go to find mode, and then you're you know, right there. It's the same as doing it manually. But why is it important to know? Well, sometimes when you're going to find mode, you may want to know where your cursor is going to be. I've had many scripts I've designed where it was important to be on the first field and not the third field. And so you'd need to, at that point, know that you need to do a commit record because if you have no field selected in browse mode, then you're not going to, you're going to be in the first field in tab order in find mode. So you may get different reactions from your script if you didn't know that little tidy little detail. Yep. Okay. Close popover. I use it all the time. It closes the popover. Yeah. I, um, it, it's very useful, but you, I always have a button on the popover to actually close it with just a little X icon, usually in the top right-hand corner. And if you don't have that, you can close the popover by just clicking outside of it. But having that close button makes it obvious. Yeah, and I've gone back and forth regarding that, and, and I've lately just not been doing that because it takes up room in the popover, and it's, it's against... Uh, Apple user guidelines. I don't know about Windows and things like that. So, but you know, it's really up to you and it's easy to put in there, right? Yeah. I just make it a very small button that fits in the top right hand corner and, uh, and that's it. Yeah. It definitely does make it more obvious. I, I'll give you that much. But that's also, that's also really important from developing from the user because we're tr always, as developers, we're trying to make it obvious to the user. So, who won't have the knowledge or depth of experience that people like you and I do, John, because they're not doing it for decades. Yeah, I think the point that, that uh, the guidelines make is that it's how a popover works. And that's why it's inherent in the actual functioning of it that that's the way it works and there should be no reason to put a button there. But that, you know, I, I get your point. You know, for people who are less familiar with a popover, then maybe uh, it helps them a little bit and, and couldn't certainly hurt. But I've kind of gone for a more clean interface in that regard. It's, it's really up to you as a developer what you want to do. What about go to field versus go to object, John? Well, uh, I personally use go to object whenever I can, um, just because I have the ability to have two copies of the same field on one layout. And if you say go to field and you have two of the same field for whatever reason, and it's happened to me many times, it will go to the one that's farthest back on the layering, if I remember correctly. It's either that or the one that's, I think it's the one that's farthest back on the layering. In other words, as you put objects on the layout, the first one you put on there is at, at, the, at the first layer, and then the second layer and the third, it keeps building up like that. Unless you change uh, the object and arrange them to say send it back or something like that, then it's going to be in the order in which you put them on the layout. And so that go to field is going to go to the first one, not the one that you might necessarily want to. And you don't want to have to fiddle with the layering to, to get that to work. You really want it just to work. And, and so all you have to do is name that field, and then you can use go to object. Right. So just as a quick question for our listeners, why would you have two copies of the same field on a single layout? Yeah, that was not prepared to answer that. And I... <laughs> I, I did it in, uh, the first thing that comes to my mind is I have a calendar solution on my website, and I did it inside the calendar solution. I believe it was two global fields, and I was reusing the same global field, so I didn't have to create a whole bunch of them. And so I had one global field uh, 
on the layout and one in a popover. And I kept clicking the button going, why is this go to field not working? It keeps going to the wrong place. And, oh, okay, so there's two, co- you know, so. Yeah, well, that that's actually a very good explanation where you've got a popover or a tab panel where you've got it showing on multiple multiple areas. And you do, in on occasion, need that duplication of the fields. But it's something that's worth just, it was worth mentioning because it, you know, it's like, why would you do that? Yeah, it's, there's, there's probably a variety of reasons. A lo- most often a go-to field is going to work just fine. But I also like the formula that you can attach on a go-to-object. You can simply just put, quote, the name of the object you want to go to and then end quote. But you can actually write a full calculation. So it's more sophisticated. And I've just kind of made it uh, the default for me to just use go-to-object because then I don't get into any trouble with any of the problems I talked about. Right. Good, good idea. Go to record and go to portal row. Okay. We talked a little bit about those uh, just briefly before, but they're for loops, essentially. For the most part, I should say, uh, I do use go to portal row often to uh, go to the last row in the portal so that people don't have to scroll down and then select that blank row. You just hit this button and it goes to the last row. And that's generally what I use for go to portal row for. Um, but it can also be used for transactional processing. And if you want to look that up, uh, if you're having trouble with record locking, and remember we described that whole looping thing where we want to loop through, let's say you're doing inventory, right? And you, you're doing invoices in one layout and you want to take everything you just sold out of inventory to give real-time inventory. Well, that script is going to have to loop through something or do something across a bunch of records to go ahead and subtract all those values of what you just sold. If you try record looping, you know, going to that child, that inventory, the product section and looping through the products that they just purchased and subtracting, well, the problem you're going to have is that it's possible one of those products might be locked. Somebody might be editing the description or something like that. And then it's not going to have, it's not going to remove that, uh, you know, inventory level or reduce it for you. And so a lot of times what people do, and you, we're not going to get far into this, but transactional processing is a really cool technique that allows you to go through the rows in a portal, much like you go through the records in the child table. And if you come across a record that's locked, you can simply revert the record because you're still on the parent record in a portal. But if you revert the record, it reverts not only the parent record, but all of the related records in there. So you can get halfway through, find a record lock and then go, oh, I don't want to make those changes I just made. So I'm going to you know, go back and, and turn them off and then say, sorry, this record can't be uh, you know, leveled right now for inventory. Try again in a few minutes. And maybe next time they click it, it'll go ahead and work just fine for them. So transactional processing is pretty cool and can get you one of the ways, not the only way, but one of the ways to get around record locking issues when you're looping. Let's move on to go to related record, our favorite GTRR, as it's most commonly referred as. Yeah, when you're when you nobody wants to write the whole thing out, right? They're, when you're typing, it's GTRR. So if you've ever seen that, now you know what it means. Right. So it simply transforms a relationship into records, and what I mean by that is, if you typically the most common scenario is you have a portal and you want to get those records those related records in a found set in the child 
in, in a layout based on the child table. So you're moving from the portal into the child layout and you want those, let's say there's 30 records in the portal. You want to see those 30 records over in the child table. Pretty simple stuff and there's many uses for it, but that's the basic idea. It transforms a relationship into a found set. There's a few gotchas though, right? Yeah, that's a, that's, well, you know, that's a very good description and you're exactly right. That's exactly what it does, but I hadn't thought of it in, in that term. And I think that's a very useful description for people to just stick in their mind. So there's a few gotchas with uh, go to related record that you, you'd be aware of, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. And the, the, the most common one is you must check to see if there are related records before you go there. So just as an example, you've got an invoice and you've got invoice items and you decide that all the invoice items you put in were screwed up, so you need to delete them. So you set a script, go to go to the invoice items, delete those records. Well, if you'd already deleted the invoice items and then the script was go to those items and delete the record, if there are no records and you don't check to see it before you do that, then you could end up deleting whatever you're doing will happen on the records you're starting with. And that could be disastrous. In other words, deleting all your invoices, right? Or whatever we're in the found set. Scary stuff, right? Yeah. So how do you typically check for uh, no records? Well, I just use a constant relationship and I've got a, a f in all of my uh, fields, I've got a calculated field with a value of one called one with a value of one. And I just use that to test to see if there are related records. So if the value of that field is one, there are related records. And if it isn't, there aren't. And I'm sure that's not the best way. It's just the way that I've used. I know that you can use um, record error number 101, but I'm just used to what I'm used to doing. Yeah, constant relationships. Uh, the reason why the Cartesian product, I think I've got that right, the X relationship was brought out, was to avoid having used constant relationships. So I'm glad you brought that up because we can talk a little bit about it. Most of the time, a constant relationship won't be a problem, but there are situations where people use them and they slow down their database tremendously. So um, if you're not noticing a, a slowdown, you don't have to go back and go, oh my God, let me change my, uh, you know, my, my constant relationship uh, to to a, to a Cartesian product, um, don't worry about it. But if you do notice a slowdown, you might want to take a look at it and try the Cartesian product instead. Well, the Cartesian is great for when you want to be able to look at all records from the relationship. But and that is when you're going to have large record counts. But typically, when you're connecting invoices to invoice items, you've only got a few records that are related to, you know, to to one another. So the the constant relationship there, I don't think has any real negative effect. Certainly not one that anyone would notice. Probably not. I just worry about sometimes people um, using a technique and not knowing what the, the downside is. Do you remember, do you remember in the old days, you go to related record used to go to the related layout and show zero records? Yeah, and, and I put in the notes, I put the screaming emoji should be inserted right here because, man, they fixed that 
well, I don't think they fixed it real quick, but man, I, it's been so long. But I remember when we had to, had to, this was even more, well, I don't know if it was more important, but it was different reaction. Now, when you do it, a go related record, it doesn't go anywhere. So you kind of have the same problem, but in the opposite way, right? That's yeah, that's right. And it's, you know, six of one and a half dozen the other. I prefer the way it is now, but you just remembered, must remember to check to see if there are related records before you go to there and do anything yeah i think what would happen before is if you it might have not showed zero records it might have showed all records and i might be remembering that wrong so go to related record with no related records or go over to the related layout that you specified show all records and then if you followed up with your delete all records then all of your line you know your child records were gone but it's just the same as if you never left and deleted all records it's going to be just as bad maybe even worse now so this is so important to check here and so there's quite a few ways to check if there are related records or not, we Michael already mentioned uh, error number 101 record is missing. You can do that. Another one is to check across a relationship to see if the primary key is empty, right? You just say is empty, open parentheses, specify the related primary key, which will always have a value in it, right? Because you need to worry about checking a field that actually has a value. But if it if there's no record there, no related record, then there's no value in the field and it'll return uh, an empty. And that's the best, that's one way to do it. But, you know, you have to go across a relationship to check that. So is that slow or not? It's hard to say. Maybe the 101 uh, error is faster. But even some people I've seen will actually avoid go to related record. They'll set a variable to the primary key, go over to the child table, do a find in the foreign key there, see if there's any records, see if zero records are returned or whatever happens, and then do it based on that. So there's so many ways to do it. And I've actually used every single technique. And I've found out that sometimes doing it the way I just described with the find actually works better in some situations. So keep these things on your tool belt. You know, you've got your 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 screwdriver and your your hammer and and you know all the different tools hanging off your belt. And some of them you'll use all the time, but some of them go, oh, this will work perfect in this situation. You pull it out and you go, okay. So knowing all these different techniques or at least being familiar with them will help you to design a better solution. Yeah, I just I I can't remember a case where I've used that technique of going off to the child table and doing a, a find. If the relationship exists, then I'm going to use it because it's already there, and I, I just can't think of an instance where I where that would be not the most preferable way to go. Yeah, the way I did it without getting too far into it was when I was duplicating a parent record along with the child records, and that's where it came in handy to do it that way rather than go to related record. But I'll leave it at that, and and you know you can take a look at it. Just keep it in mind; it could possibly be, but in most cases you know, one of these methods will be just fine. You don't have to know all of them is really yep, what it comes out. Absolutely. To. Okay. One of the, probably the most important script step for scripting is go to layout. It doesn't do a whole lot, right? It just goes to the layout, but what it does is it sets context and context is everything when you're scripting. Well, context is, is everything in FileMaker. It's not just in scripting. Context is the most in, important concept of understanding how a relational data, database works, in my opinion. Oh, you're absolutely right. When I was in FileMaker 6, there was no concept of 
or context wasn't as big a concept as it is now, where it wasn't really. In fact, it wasn't because you didn't have multiple tables, so it didn't matter about anything about context. You were you were either in the file or you weren't. You know, it's it it had nothing. It had no bearing. But now with multiple tables, all of a sudden context is extremely important. Like you said, in every area of FileMaker, but especially true in scripting. Right. So before we go on to the scripting, John, I want to just bring up a quick point about context. If you're confused by the term context, it means how you get to where you're going. And if you're out of context, it's like being dropped in the middle of somewhere and not knowing where you are. And if you don't know where you are, you can't get to where you want to go. And that's the way that I describe it. Context is knowing where you're starting so you can get to your destination. Absolutely. Great explanation. I like to think of it as if you're in your car, you can drive to the supermarket. If you're in your house, you need to first get in your car and then you can drive to the supermarket. That's context. That's what a layout is. Think of the layout as your car or anything is if you're not in the right perspective the place where you can do that thing. In other words, if you're scripting and you want to set a field in the contacts table, you have to be on a layout. Most likely there's exceptions to this, but most likely you have to be on a layout based on con on contacts. That is your context in order to set that field properly. Otherwise it's going to have to go through a relationship and it might not do quite what you want. It, it still may, it still be, may be the right context if you're not on the contacts layout, but that's kind of the basic idea is that if you want to set something in contacts, you need to be on a layout based on contacts. Correct. Okay. So there's a couple of options, go to layout name and go to layout number. I use go to layout name quite a bit. And the reason I use it is for indirection. So when I name my layouts, I typically have two standard layouts for every table. That would be form and list. I design a layout for form and I design a layout for list. So I would have, let's say it's a, an invoicing solution. I would have invoices underscore form, invoices underscore list. And there's probably some customers. So I'd have customers underscore form, customers underscore list, and so on and so on. Every, every single one is named exactly that way. So that what I can do then is have one script that says go to layout. I can grab the layout name or the first word from the layout name, because I always name my tables with single words, almost always, there's exceptions, of course, but you can grab that. So if I'm on contacts form, I can grab the first word, which will be contacts, and then add on list to go to the list view. And to come back, I grab the first word and then go back to form. And so I can make this one script that goes between form and list, or it's actually two, rather than one for every single layout that I want, you know, form and list view I want to switch between. So if you have, you know, 50 tables, you know, you're cutting down, you know, 100 scripts down to two. Yeah, that's a very good point. And it's all about the thing that we strive to do most, which is KISS, keep it simple, stupid. Okay, go to next field and go to previous field. They're helpful for field loops. And here I'm going to mention again the types of loops. There's the field loop, the record loop, the portal loop, the data loop, and the scripted loop. Now, the field loop goes through all the fields on your layout that are in the tab order. It just goes from one to one to one. And I've used that quite a bit for reconstructing fine criteria dynamically. And I have quite a few articles on the philosophy of filemaker.com website that you can take a look at regarding that. 
We talked about the record loop. We talked about the portal loop with the transactional processing. The data loop is pretty cool when you're parsing stuff adaptively or within direction. And it it's working through data in a script in a single field, not multiple fields, just one single field. And I've done that quite a bit too. And then there's your scripted loop, which loops through script steps that have nothing to do with data necessarily. And there's a good example on, again, on philosophyoffilemaker.com. I'm plugging it really good today. And that example is called the ultimate find. It'll show you what a scripted loop is. Yeah, it's worth plugging, John. I hope so. Sometimes I, I wonder, but you never know. I'm, you know, hopefully people, uh, I always try to get people to comment, but they, 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 they're so silent. I was like, well, just say something. I want to know that people are reading this stuff, you know? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we're down to the editing section. This is the evil section. Let me say it again. This is the evil section. I'm not saying you can't use these. I'm just saying don't abuse them. So the most evil is cut and copy. Why? Because when you use cut and copy, and what people are typically using it for is to move data from one place to another. What happens when you do that is you're deleting the contents of the clipboard, the one that might have some user information in it, and the user goes, where'd my information go? Well, why is it not here? Why is this, this stuff from FileMaker in here? And so it's really not a good idea to mess with that clipboard. You have plenty of script steps like set field and set variable and all those things that can move data around without using the clipboard. Not only that, cut and copy require the field that you're cutting or copying from to be on the current layout. So that marries your script to that layout, meaning that if you change the layout, you have to remember to change the script, right? Or you have to remember not to change the layout. Why is this field here? I don't need it. You know, sometimes you forget this stuff. So you don't want to marry those two. But with something like set field, it doesn't require that target field to be on the current layout. You just have to be in the right context on the right table for it to work. But the field doesn't have to actually be there. I remember back in the old days when I, I used to use copy and paste back in the FileMaker Pro 2.0 days. Uh, there was no set field then, so you had no choice, but that was the way it was back then. But just be careful. If your button says cut or copy on it, then you're fine because people know it's going to use the clipboard. You know, you're trying to copy something and give it, make it a little more automatic for them. Who knows what? I will make a button that will copy some code or something that they can paste somewhere else outside of FileMaker or something like that. Who knows? It could be just about anything, but make sure your button's clear on what it's going to do. Right. The only time I think I've in recent memory, the only time I've ever used copy is when there's an email field and they want to copy it to the clipboard so they can type it into it, push, paste it into an email that they want to send. But other than that, I never use it. Exactly. And your button says copy. So it's, it's a valid use. So just don't use it to move data around. Now, clear and paste are almost as bad. They don't mess with the clipboard, but they do still require the field, the target field to be on the layout. So you want to make sure you don't marry that script in that layout. Have you ever had a problem with perform, find, slash, replace, Michael? I don't think I've ever used that ever. So the idea behind perform, find, replace is like uh, the replace field contents on steroids, right? It's like a find replace that you'd find in a word processor. It will go everywhere. In other words, whatever layout you're on, it'll go to every field in every record on the found set and try to do the replace that you're asked it to do. 
Yeah, that's evil and should never, ever use it. Right, right. So you're in agreement with me on this one? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I, I, I guess the problem I had was, you know, before I started using uh, custom menus, I would leave those features available. And somebody got in there and just destroyed the database. They didn't know what it was about. So you need to make sure you, you remove that with your uh, security and your custom menu so that people can't get access to that feature because they just don't know how it works. They don't know it's going to go to every field and every uh, record in the layout. So Yeah, I remember that you're going to laugh at this, but back in the days of ISP billing, I had one customer call me up and said, oh my God, I've lost all my invoices. And I went, what do you mean you've lost all your invoices? Well, they've gone. Well, how could they possibly gone? I deleted them. So wait a minute, let me get this right. You decided to delete the records and you said yes to three separate warnings saying, are you absolutely sure you want to do this? And she said, uh-huh. I said, well, there's nothing I can do to help you. Yeah, it reminds me of a story. We, uh, when I worked in Claris Technical Support, and this is Claris V version 1.0, not Claris version 2.0. So this is years and years and years ago. A common call, probably about you know once a month, at least one agent would get this call, which is, I'm deleting all my records right now. I want to stop it. How can I do that? Or I'm replacing all my records. How can I stop? What can I do? I'm like, well, there's really nothing we can do. We can't, you know, you know, you can you can force quit your solution, but there, you know, there's 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 nothing you can do about it. Delete all records. It's going to delete all the records whether you like it or not. And so you got to be careful about those messages, and and especially not give users who aren't thinking about this stuff, you know, just try just don't put you know a gun in their hands, right? Don't put a something that's going to hurt them in their hands. Keep it away from them. Exactly, and that's a really good. Uh reason to use custom menus i don't use them as frequently as you do but they are incredibly useful for protecting users from doing stuff they shouldn't be doing yeah i use them on every solution but let's not confuse custom menus with security don't don't do that you should do security first and then layer on top custom menus to make it a little bit nicer custom menus does not make the feature unavailable only security does that so be careful about that now, select all, set selection, undo, redo. I hardly ever use them. They do what they do, and you might find them useful. We're not going to spend any time on them. Let's get on to the field section with some interesting stuff that, that are very you know valuable in your development career and very scary as well. you got to watch out about these. So export field contents. I use it all the time. How about you, Michael? I don't use it all the time. But it's certainly very useful if you've got a container field with a document stored in and you want to open that document in its native application. That's where I use it. Or attach an email. Like you've got a, a PDF document stored and you want to automatically send it to somebody, maybe a, a customer service solution, and you've got something you want to go ahead and, and email to them. You just click the button, it automatically attaches it because it exports it first. And then, you know, you do some set variables and things like that. Pretty cool stuff that you can do with it. So I find it highly useful and I use it on almost every solution I create. Anything that says insert in front of the script step is generally worthless. Why? Because it requires the field to be on the layout. It marries a script in the layout, just like we were talking about before. And 
there's usually a substitute for it and typically set field. So you have, let's go through these, uh, insert from index. Not a good user interface because that's what I've seen people do. They've, they, they, instead of doing a popover, what they do is they do a, a view from index or an insert from index to, to substitute or maybe they don't know the pop pop-up menus there and how to do it. So they use this instead. Oh man, really bad interface. And, and you shouldn't really be doing something like that. Uh, putting up that it's really a developer feature, right? Right. Exactly. You want to see what's in the index. That's, that's about it. And so I don't know why there is even a script step for it. If you don't know how to do it manually, you shouldn't be scripting it. I couldn't, can't tell you if I, I don't think I've ever used it in 33 years. Yeah, I, I, I use it all the time manually, just not scripting it. Uh, insert audio, video, insert file, insert picture, insert PDF. Obviously very useful and extremely easy to use. No explanation needed, right? If you need to do it, then there's your features. You need them right there. And if you're inserting a PDF or a video, you can set it to be interactive. So you can view the document, scroll through the document, a PDF, or you can get a video to play. Yeah, and this is an important thing that we, we want to spend a, a minute here on it because I see this on the forums all the time. How come I can't see my PDF document? How come I can't play my QuickTime video? How come I can't? Sometimes I can't even insert it in the container field or that they wouldn't be unless they knew about this interactive option that was in the inspector. So you remember it's there. It's, it's way over on the last tab of the inspector. I forget what the name of it is. And then you have to go all the way to the bottom and you'll see that interactive option down there, which will allow it. And you don't always want to turn it on only if you want to have interactivity. Uh, if you want to put a PDF in as other than a file, if you want to insert a PDF, you need it. But if you just want to insert a PDF as a file, which is what did I do most of the time? I don't usually use the interactive part. If you want us to put the PDF as a file in there, then you don't need to have this interactive option. But if you do want it, you want to be able to see that PDF and interact with it and see what it is inside of FileMaker, then Michael's brought up a great point. You need to know about this interactive option in the inspector. Yeah, I mean, the reason I use the interactive and the reason why listeners should use it is because if you've got, a container field that's large enough that you can put the document in and read it, i.e. full screen, full width, full height, then there's no need. You can see that document and go through it without needing to open it, export it and open it. So it is a lot of the time you just want to look at a document rather than rather than open it up specifically. My, my personal preference and every developer has different preferences and that's why we have a lot of times differing opinions here is my preference is to insert a PDF as a file and then have a button that says open. It exports the field contents and into the temporary folder so it doesn't you know clutter up your, your, your hard drive like your desktop or something. Opens it up because when you open it up in the native PDF application, you have much more control than you have inside of FileMaker. So it really comes down to, I think it depends on what you're using it for. If you just want to quickly read it, okay, interactive is great. But if you want to actually search it and uh, work with all the great features that are inside of that native application, then you really weren't going to get that with the interactive option. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay. Next are replace field contents. Again, it causes record locking on a wide basis. You're not going to be able to control the record locking. Therefore, it's basically only good for single user scenarios. 
or for tables you know that people don't have access to. You can't if if there's even one person on there, there's a potential for a record to be locked, and then you'll you'll replace a hundred records, and one of them will be locked, and you'll get ninety nine of them, and you won't even you know, you know you could have error checking in there, but you know it's just what do you do at that point? Do you go back and uncheck you know undo what you did on those records? Are they now locked where they weren't before? I mean it's just a big um, rat's nest that you really can't control very well. So in general, replace field content's not good for multi user. It also can't be undone. So it's scary if you try to replace, if you, and I, I always read the dialogue. I, I click in the field. I read that entire dialogue. I mean, I've been reading it for 30 plus years and I still read it because I, you know, sometimes you're just, you're on remote control and you put your cursor in the field and you, and then you put a calculation and then you, you refer to the, I read the, the, that message and, and the formula very carefully. In fact, I often do that formula in data viewer first and then copy and paste it in there. It's just a scary, scary script step. And you should definitely very carefully program it when you're using it because you never know what's going to happen. Yeah, I don't ever use it in a script. Uh, I only ever use it when, you know, doing a manual update of a whole bunch of records. And I categorically will not do it when I'm tired. Right, right, exactly. I mean, because, you know, when, you're, when you've been working at the computer for 10, 12 hours, you try and do a replace and you're just, your brain is fried. It's really easy to make a mistake. And as you say, with no undo, it's incredibly dangerous. Yeah, where I typically script it is if I'm maybe importing some records from a table that has defaults into a table where I want to attach it to a particular parent record, I would have to go ahead and put the primary key on there so that it would connect up through the relationship. Um, things like that was where I'll use replace because it gets things done. They're all new records. Nobody's going to be looking at them. They're not even connected to anything. You don't have to worry about record locking and it's quick and easy to do that. So it, it, it can be used, yeah. but just be, just keep in your mind when you're thinking about replace field contents, don't mess it up. Right. <laughs> and re remember the record locking. If you remember those two things, then you can play with that. Say it's like holding a knife. You know, <laughs> there's a few rules, you know, that you have. You hold the knife by the handle and you don't run while you're holding the knife. Right. So there's, you know, the same idea right. with the replace field contents. Remember those rules and you won't get hurt. Okay. Set field, my favorite right. step. And it looks like Michael wrote down here, mine too. Is that, a, is that enough said or? <laughs> Yep, I love it. Let's just uh, talk about it briefly. If you're not using set field now, you should be using set field. It's very simple to use. You have a target and you have a calculation result. Whatever the result that calculation is, whether it's a very complex calculation or simply text, you know, a, a string in quotes, it puts that result into that field. So it's much like a calculation field, but you get to control when the set field occurs by clicking a button or maybe it's a script trigger or who knows what. So it's, it's, it's in a way it's different. It's more of a snapshot in time, whereas a calculation is typically a live and it'll update as day. This, this sets it at that moment in time and can be a very different result. Um, it's especially important when moving data from table to table, you might set a variable go to another layout that's attached to a different table and then 
set field, that variable value into the target field and then come back. Of course, the important thing to remember is that the set field doesn't have to have the field on the layout. That's why it's really useful. Yeah, you can't, you can't, uh, you can't, you know, stop talking about that. It's, it's an unbelievable benefit of that that step. And if, if we can burn it into your mind that that you don't have to marry a, a layout to a script when using set field, and and that's one of the reasons why to use it, then great. That that if that if we have to say it fourteen times, you get annoyed by it. Hopefully, that annoyance will help you remember how important set field and how powerful it is. Now, what about set field by name, John? I know people, some of the developers out there are going to say, you're crazy. But uh, in my opinion, it sounds sexy, but does it really help that often? And, and let me give an example. I was doing something yesterday, and I was using set field by name, and it was getting very complicated because I had to involve get field and evaluate and all these different functions to figure out what field are just to make a really short script. And I, and I go and I go, Hmm, well, I only have five fields because this is form that my client has. It only has five choices and they have in for, I don't want to try to get too complicated with it, but there's only five choices. We don't have to loop through. There'll never be any other choices and it's a government thing. So that I know there won't. So why would we make it adaptive or dynamic with set field by name and use all these complicated things like, you know, get field and, and, you know, keeping track of things when I just simply just did a bunch of set fields in a row. Cause I knew there'll only ever be five. And so for me, it can help in very, very, important situations where you've got a, a script that you want to be very concise and precise and, and short. Um, but in, for most cases, I find out, you know, you're spending more time making this sexy script that you can go, look how short my script is when really the, the person who's paying you is your client and you want to do things as quickly as possible. And set field is just so straightforward. And while you may have a script that's two or three or four times as long, it was much easier to program. And so I kind of have a thing I'm I'm a little bit against, you know, using uh, you know, things like set field by name in general. I have used it and, and done some cool things, but those were in situations where it had to be adaptive. It had to be dynamic. Yeah, which are which are not as common as one might think. So I agree with you. Set field is just really simple, really straightforward and really easy. And that's what you always want to be doing. Easy, simple, straightforward. Yeah. I mean, you know, think about it and, and decide whether it's worth your time or not. Maybe it is. Who knows? Relookup field contents. Uh, I don't use lookups. Um, I favor auto enter calculations because of something uh, that Andy Lacates told me about a decade ago when, when auto enter calculations uh, got improved or came out, actually. And he said that, hey, you know, auto enter can do, it can do 99% of what lookups. I, I can't say there's a couple of times when I've used lookups. And they've been for reasons that allowed me to get something done I couldn't do with AutoEnter, but not very often. And the reason I want to use AutoEnter is because it has that, that new code in there that's been written from the ground up versus the legacy code that the lookup's based on. Now, this is a decade ago. Things could have changed. But Andy told me that you know there were, there were issues, uh, speed issues with some kind of clients. And, and so we want to make sure that... Uh, that, uh, you know, you don't run into those. So I, I just try to avoid lookups whenever possible. And therefore, I don't really need relookup. Yep. Insert from URL. Handy. Do I use it often? No. 
it just simply takes the code from a URL that you specify and puts it into it's kind of like looking at the you know when you're in a web browser you can look at the at the back end of the the website and see what's made it you know it's it's good for things like uh parsing out uh they often call it web scraping but websites change and web scraping's not really that reliable so but i know a lot of people use this with a lot of things i'm just you know i'm typically not designing sites like that that interact that much with websites so it's not that handy or that useful for me yeah i don't use it I know other developers are going to say, hey, I use it all the time. Well, that's great. I mean, every developer is different, but I've been doing this for 30 years and hardly anybody needs insert from URL the benefits that it can have. So it's one of those things you don't have to spend a lot of time on. Because remember, the reason we're going through all these script steps is because we want to give you an idea where to go. We're giving a little bit longer explanation, but we want to give you an idea where to go and where to concentrate on. And certainly insert from URL can help you. But is it going to really help you like set field? No way. You need to know set field inside and out to master scripting. Right. Moving on to records. Yes. The commit and the open. Very, very often misunderstood. Commit exits all the fields on the layout. It's the same thing as the enter key on the keypad. It's the same thing as clicking where there's no field or no button and then you no fields are selected. It does a couple of things. It commits that record so that it can, the information can then be seen by everybody on the network, right? But the opposite of it is open record request, which gives you control over that record. Now, if you didn't have open record request, how else would you get control of that record or find out if you could have control? You could try writing to that record, doing a set field. But if you try doing that, then do you have, you have to take off what was on there or do you try writing the same thing back to itself? It's just a, a very kludgy way of doing things. So if you just do an open record request, it'll give you an error, back, error message back whether that record is locked or not. And that's simply how it's used. You say, if you're going to do something to a record and you're with a script, you simply start off with open record request. And you check for the error. And if there's no error, then you have control of it at that point. You do what you need to do. And then you commit at the end to give control back to somebody else, whoever else wants to use it. Okay. Copy and copy all records. Copy all records. I was there working in tech support when Darren Terry, the inventor of this technique, not the inventor of copy all records. I don't think the people who created the copy all records featured the development team at FileMaker at that point, or Claris actually it was at that point, had any idea that Darren would use it this way. But what he did was he made us a, a layout with just serial numbers on it, just one field, right? He went to that layout, you know, this is all scripted, of course, copied all records, which copies every single field content for the entire found set, and then because there's only one field on there, it makes a return separate list, which is a multi-key. And so I was there when he wrote that article, and I'm not sure I realized how important that article was when he wrote it. But years and decades later, I'm going, wow, that was really, this guy is a smart guy. Because you can use multi-keys for all kinds of things. And copy all records, even though it destroys the clipboard, is the fastest because I've done tests on every single one of them, is the fastest, and it could have changed. I mean, things change all the time. But when I did my last test, by far the fastest way to collect lots of values into a multi-key. It's just got that downside of the clipboard, and of course you have to make a layout to support it. Other ways you can build multi-keys, uh, you can use the list function, or you can use a list of summary field. Now, let's before we go on, let's just talk about what uses a multi-key might have, because I know it's a concept that a lot of people who aren't 
very experienced will have trouble with. How would you define a multi-key and how would you use it? Well, I don't use them as often as I used to because FileMaker's added a lot of features that allow me to avoid them. But the idea is if you put into a primary key, and typically with a multi-key, it's going to be in the situation where it's a global field, right? So if you gather together with the script a bunch of values and put them in a return separate list in that global field, then you can store, uh, I forget the, the amount of, of data you can store in a single field, but it's tremendous. So you can get a very large multi-key. You'll never get to the end of, of the size of the field. It's gigantic. It's it's. I won't even quote the sizes, I forget, but it's it back in the 7.0 days, it used to be two gigabytes. You, you're saying you know what it is? No, it's a staggeringly large number. It's it's incomprehensible. Even two gigabytes was stagger, staggering. Lo- I can't even say that word right now. I've been talking too much. But but yeah, so it's it's even bigger than two gigabytes now. So it's it's gigantic. So you gather all these values, whatever method you want to use, copy all records, um, you know, uh, and you put them in a global field. So here's an example. Let's say you wanted to save a found set. And I have a, a, a plugging philosophy of FileMaker.com everywhere I talk in this podcast, but there's an, a series of four articles about how to work with found sets. And one of them is about how to restore, save and restore a found set. And this is perfect here because you can go in, get all those serial numbers from all the records in the found set store them in another table, give it a name. And then a week later, a month later, two years later, the person can go ahead and say, I want to restore this found set. And it will remember as long as the record's not one of the, you know, it'll remember everything that hasn't been deleted. So it's a great way to give you a, a feature for, you know, saving and restoring found sets. You know, that's really interesting you brought that up because I used to do that a lot and I haven't done it for a while and I'd kind of forgotten about doing it but it's an incredibly powerful technique to do that and you know you gather you gather all your primary keys and you loot through and gather them and then just set them into a field or a new record and store it and then use that to go to related record where i tend to use multi keys most often is when i've got a field with a number of selections number of checkbox selections and the user makes the selections and then runs a script that goes off and creates related records in another table based on that selection and what i'm doing then is grabbing a list of all the primary keys that have been used and using that to display a different a second value list that now only shows the options that haven't been selected. Very cool. Yeah, there's, there's, and, and I don't think I explained how a multi-key works very well because I don't really, you know, you know, do that. I describe my example, so we're kind of going in reverse. I should have started off with this, but when you put a return between values in a primary key field, whether it's a global field or a regular field or whatever, it can't. It's got to be a text field though. When you put those returns, it says that each one of those values is a separate match. Normally, when you put the values in a match field, it considers the entire value as a match and has to match something in the related table. When you put the returns in there, all of a sudden it's an or and says, oh, let's say I had one, two, three, four, you know, all the way to 10, all with returns between them. So now it's going to match one or two or three or four. And so that's very powerful, that or 
possibility because you really don't have that. When you go into a relationship and define it and put multiple key fields on there, that's an and. All those have to match. A multi-key is an or, and so it can be very powerful uh, as far as developing unique features and, and cool techniques and things like that. But if you're really interested in looking more into it, you've never heard about them, look at my articles on philosophyoffilemaker.com and look for the stuff about restoring found sets. Right. Another use for a multi-key, this is kind of fun, is using it in a in conditional formatting. So, for example, you might have a portal of values, portal of products, and when you're adding products to an invoice, you're capturing the product IDs in a, in a multi-key, and you can highlight or change the color of all the items that have already been added to the order, so you can clearly see in the portal which ones you've used and which ones you haven't. Yeah, that's a cool technique. I've used that one before, too. There's, there's so many uses for it, so I, I shouldn't say I, I don't use it often, but... It, sometimes it takes a little bit of work to work with it, and, and and if the client asks for it, definitely do it and remember that multi key what it can do for you. It's it's very very cool. Yeah, it's fun. It's a lot of fun. And remember that uh, multi keys are stored in a return separate list. So being able to parse a return separate list is very important, not only for multi keys but for any calculation function that returns multiple values, like the list function. That's going to come in a return separate list. So you really need to know how to work with those return separate lists to manipulate them and grab the values you want. So make sure you look at that stuff. And again, stuff on philosophyoffilemaker.com covers how to work with uh, return separate lists. Right. So there's a, here's an interesting, uh, just a technique, a tip, trick. If you have a carriage return list, and obviously it could have multiple values, so you'd have to have a field big enough to display it. But what I often do is if I want to just see those, I just use another field and I substitute the carriage returns for a comma. And now I've got a string of values that I can just look at and see what's in that multi-key. Yep. Something I've done very often, too. It, it can, you know, sometimes put things into a sentence, too. You know, almost like, a, you know, comma separates. Yeah, there's there's so much use in, in being able to manipulate multi-keys and work with them because FileMaker is going to give you all kinds of data that way. You know, and then you go, well, I don't want to read it that way. Like you said, I want to read it in a line, not, you know, I want it horizontal, not vertical. Okay, well, let's move on. I think we, we uh, talked more about copy and copy all records than we wanted to, but let's get back on track here. So delete all records and the new truncate table. Both are scary script steps because they delete all the records. But what's the difference between them? Sometimes you need to use them, right? I use delete all records quite a bit, but it, very carefully. But what's the difference between delete all records and truncate table? So truncate table is faster sometimes when deleting a lot of records. So let's say you want to get rid of, maybe you made a whole bunch of records for an ad hoc report. You had to pull a whole bunch of data from this table and this table and this table and put it into one table so then you could do a simple sub-summary report. So I shouldn't really call it ad hoc, but you wanted to get to the point where it'd be ad hoc. And then you want to do it again. So you want to delete all the records. Well, truncate table could be faster and you might want to use it in that situation. But if you're trying to just do the found set, you're going to have to use delete all records. In other words, you don't want to get rid of all the records in the, in the table. This is one of those times, again, where you come back, you check to see if there are related records before you go there and delete them, um, as opposed to going to a, the table. I typically only use truncate table when I have a, a temporary table that I'm 
bringing in data in as an interim step and then running a, a script or processing that data into different locations. And I always want to start with an empty table. So that's when I use the truncate table. But that's the only time I ever use that. Yeah, it just gets rid of everything. And it could be faster. So if that's a situation, use it instead of delete all records. Truncate also attempts to lock all the records first. So it's not going to, it, it, you, there's another thing about record locking. You can't delete a record that's locked, that another user is modifying. So we'll attempt to lock all of them first. Again, like I said, it doesn't care about the found set. It doesn't delete the related records, right? Doesn't do a cascading deletes, if they're, even if that's turned on. It's important to know as well. And that's it requires, yeah, I, I, one I'd forgotten about when I read about it. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. Uh, requires full access account or granted through the script option that can say run the script with full access privileges. So you have to have full access to do this. If all those th scenarios are true, those, those, that, you know, then go ahead and use truncate. And, but, you know, it's not, it, they're not the same script steps. So be careful. Yeah. I mean, anytime you are deleting a large number of records, you've got to be 1000% sure you know what you're doing. Especially if you're on a live system, that's even scarier, right? Don't do that. <laughs> Correct. Okay. Save records as snapshot, PDF, and Excel. Pretty cool things. I use save, save records as PDF all the time. Rarely use Excel, but I know that you use it more often, I think. Yeah, because I've got clients who some of their users want to see the data in a spreadsheet. And no matter what we're doing, we can't get them to get away from using spreadsheets, which are just horrible. But saving records as PDF is particularly useful when you're generating a report and you then want to email that report. So you generate it as a PDF, say, save it to a variable name, and then just attach it to the email. So why would you use save records as Excel and not export records and choose the Excel format? Any benefits to that for you? I don't really think there's much difference, to be honest, John. Oh, there's a big difference for sure. <laughs> um, well, I mean, if I'm saving records as Excel, I'm specifying the the fields I want to save. But if I'm using um, export as Excel or the other option, then those fields have to be on the layout that I'm generating the Excel list from. So saving them as excel gives me a little bit more flexibility without having to design a specific layout for that purpose i think that's probably the exception or the difference yeah no that's exactly the difference between them and, and it can be a, a benefit and it can also be a disadvantage so if you want the the you want to use save records as excel if you want to have it based on a layout so you can change the layout and determine which fields get exported. Correct. but i'm kind of old school and i like to have know exactly what's getting export. I don't like to marry the script to it. So I typically go for the export records, but it, you know, each person's different. Do it the way that works best for you. But there is a gigantic difference between these two, even though ultimately the goal is to make the same file. They work a lot differently. Is one faster than the other? That I don't know. That's a good question. I, I would uh, imagine that they've got to be about the same speed. They're, I, 
wouldn't make sense and one would be faster than the other, but you never know. Yeah. Well, next time you talk to Andy Lacates, ask him that question. <laughs> that very rarely happens. So, <laughs> Andy, if you're listening, come on the show. We want to talk to you. Yeah. Uh, whenever I'm with talking to Andy, I'm always got a notepad with me and I'm taking notes because I, you know, you never know when stuff's going to come. If if you guys don't know who Andy Lacates is, he's typically the guy who sits up at uh, the developer conference now called Claris Engage. And uh, is the guy who does the the new features presentation and walks you through how to work them on any new version. So it's in the opening session usually and things like that. He's a very knowledgeable, well spoken, uh, very easy to understand uh, gentleman. And and uh, you know he's been with FileMaker and Claris now for a couple of decades. So he's an extremely valuable player and and for them, I believe his current title is evangelist now, which is perfect for him. I think it's perfect. He used to be a, a systems engineer, and then he was a, in charge of all the systems engineers. Now he's evangelist. I'm not. I'm not sure how many roles he takes on, but uh, at this point, because often you do when you work for a company like that. But that's his title, evangelist, and I think a very good one. Yep, great guy. So let's talk about snapshot link because a lot of people misunderstand this feature, and there's a feature for save records of snapshot. And and when we talk, when I talk about it on philosophy of filemaker dot com talk about uh, those restoring the found sets. One of the ways I do it with this is is with the snapshot link. And so what a snapshot link is is a very small file. It's .fmpsl, I think is what it is, different than .fmp12. It's .fmpsl, but it's a FileMaker file, but not the kind that you would actually open up and have fields and edit it. It restores basically a found set. So you can be looking at something on your screen and go, I want to share it with this guy. So what's the old way of doing it? You call the guy up on the phone. You say, hey, go into find mode um, or first go to this, uh, navigate over here, navigate there, and and then go into find mode and then do this and then sort and then go to this mode. And, and you know, you, you any, at any point, it would be diff, easy for somebody to mess that up, not to mention just a pain to do. What you can do is save a snapshot link, whether it's in a script or manually, and it will remember the found set not the fine criteria though. It remembers the actual records in there. It'll remember the current record you're on, the layout you're on, what mode you're in, what sort order there is, what the state of the toolbar is, and what view you're in, form, list, or table. Put that into this little um, little XML file that's very small. You can email it over to somebody and they double click on it. They still have to put their credentials in, but it'll open up a new window and it will go ahead and show you exactly what you're looking at. So it's a great way of working with somebody who might be not in the same office with you. It's not something I've used very much, to be honest. I, I did use it on one project a while back, but it was the exception rather than the rule. And I get the use of it, but I don't think it's that useful. It, it really isn't, but I'll tell you where I used it. I had a project where the client was doing a lot of collaboration with people in the office, but they weren't necessarily there all over the United States. So they had this little messaging system built into FileMaker. And one of the things they could do is they could attach a snapshot link to their message and say, hey, take a look at this client. So instead of the person trying to find that client by the ID or something, they just click that snapshot link that was stored inside of a container field inside the messaging system inside FileMaker. And it would automatically open a new window and they could, oh, okay, now you're, what you wrote me makes sense because I, I can see, you know, that record and, and I can check it out and give you my comment back. Yeah, that's a good use of it. 
So those are the kinds of things you can, but there's, there's unlimited use. It's really for collaboration and keep remembering that collaborating with people. Okay. Revert record request. We're getting, we're probably what, like halfway through. Yeah, probably. It's, it's, this is a probably going to be a two part podcast. We'll, we'll probably be broken right here. We'll see. Um, You've been listening to Fireside Filemaker, a podcast with John Mark Osborne and Michael Richard. We'd love to hear what you think, so please email us at info at firesidefilemaker.com. That's info at firesidefilemaker.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.